I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Amy, that's Lisa, and we're just two girls that want to have a conversation with you. Dear 16-year-old Andrea. Hey, gorgeous. Dear younger Lauren. Each episode is stories from people. I would deprive myself, play myself obsessively. Because I was eating healthy, I couldn't understand that I had a problem with food. Losing my period scared me the most. My story starts when I was around seven. That's when I started to hate my body. Body image is like our inner picture of our outer self. Healthy behaviors play a much bigger role in our health than the actual number on the scales. Internal dialogue can be so powerful and often it's super negative and critical in a way that we wouldn't talk to other people that we care about. When you start to share your story, that gives other people the courage to share theirs. I know you would be proud now of how far you have come in your relationship to food, exercise, and to yourself. I felt freedom. I've gained relationships. I've found my true sense of self-worth. There's one thing I need you to take away from this. You're going to be okay. Hey everyone, Lisa here. Today it's going to be just me. Amy's out. Well, not just me. We're actually joined by special guest Alexa Ray Ardito. Did I say that right? You did. Yeah. And Alexa is amazing. She is an eating disorder survivor. How many months pregnant are you? Seven. Seven months pregnant on her second baby to tell us her eating disorder story because as we know, or if you don't know, every eating disorder or disordered eating story is different. And really why 
I wanted to have Alexa on is not only because she's a ray of light that we all want to be around, but because what is it like to be pregnant after being so fused to being very thin? And I just want to hear about that from you. But before we do, can you tell us a little bit about your eating disorder story when it began for you even? Yeah. So I think you just brought up something great. You know, what is it like to not be thin? And before I ever start my eating disorder story, I think it's important to point out that I have always lived in a thin body. And I say that because a lot of people, their eating disorders may start because of the commentary that they receive around losing weight or trying to start a diet. So I do just want to point that out because I do think it is important. But my eating disorder started back in 2010. I was a freshman who had just enrolled in university away from home. So originally I'm from Long Island and I went to university up in Boston. And I was a few weeks into the semester and really started to struggle with depression and with anxiety. And I had never felt that prior in my life. I had never suffered from any sort of social anxiety or depression whatsoever. I was a relatively happy teenager. And I think it was because I was so out of my comfort zone. And I was dealing with a lot of insecurities, trying to meet new people and trying to fit in and always feeling like I was failing on some end of that, that I didn't belong. And I was also dealing with a lot of changes from being away from home and being away from the familiar parts of my life that I had been so accustomed to for 18 years. So about six weeks into the semester, I was really struggling with my depression and anxiety. And it starts to manifest in really unhealthy ways of eating and over-exercising. And I recognized that something was off because I was so depressed and I was having trouble getting out of bed every day and struggling to stay motivated at all. And I decided to seek help. So I went to the university therapist and sat down with her And I'm lucky now looking back that she was so intentional with her questions that she was able to really dig in with me and not just see the symptoms of depression and anxiety, but that I was also struggling with disordered eating. And she could also see physically that I was quite underweight at that point. So she, I think, had a lot of red flags raised in our initial meeting and she sent me right over to the university medical doctor to get checked out. And I remember meeting with the medical doctor and she was like, I think you have anorexia. And that is a huge red flag for us at the university because you can be such a liability to to be living on campus and be so sick. Spring break was just about to start that weekend. She recommended that I go home and tell my parents that I needed to enroll in a residential eating disorder treatment facility. And I just remember being so shocked because to me, I was doing everything that a normal, and I put that in quotations, a normal college student was doing. Was watching my weight. I was working out. I was, you know, struggling with being away from home, but didn't everybody? That's how I thought. Didn't everybody do what I was doing? Isn't this just normal to be struggling with food? Isn't this just a normal thing to be struggling with as an 18-year-old female? So I remember going home and telling my parents, who were also quite shocked because they didn't expect that at all. And The next, I think three days later, I was up in Boston enrolling in my first eating disorder treatment facility, which was a residential center. So I spent the next eight weeks there. (laughs) So just to back up for a moment, I met Alexa in person a few weeks ago. We both live in Long Island and we were actually connected through a guest who will not be named, but who told her story bravely on season one of Outway. And I meet Alexa at an outdoor coffee shop and (laughs) I see this radiant six month pregnant, beautiful woman. I learned she's the manager of Lululemon 
happen down the road. And when you started to tell me that you had an eating disorder, I was not expecting for you to say that you went to residential treatment. And how old are you now? I'm 29. Your life just is so beautiful now, and everything about you exudes confidence and togetherness that I I didn't expect you to say that it that it went there or that it went there so fast. Yeah. So anyway, just to kind of give some like beautiful hope into, and I think you will continue to do so as we go into this episode of the remarkable things that recovery can do for you, which is really just to bring you back to you. Because like I just saw a complete aligned human being. Within six months of going to college, it rapidly turned into anorexia and you enrolled in treatment. Yeah, it was it was really quite quick. I feel like it went from zero to 100 and I wasn't expecting anything of the sort because like I said, I wasn't really aware of eating disorders at the time. I wasn't really aware of anorexia or any of those behaviors. And I think, you know, I can reflect back now and see that probably when I entered treatment the first time, I probably would have said I was more disordered eating and not so much anorexia nervosa or maybe even like orthorexia. But unfortunately, you know, I did spend eight weeks in treatment, which I spent kicking and screaming for eight weeks. (laughs) I really resisted the treatment because I didn't think I belonged there. I looked at the girls around me and I thought that they looked sicker, they were thinner, and that my problems didn't really exist. And in that eight week period, I also really learned, I had like a crash course on what eating disorders were. And I think it was very triggering for me in a lot of ways. So when I did step down and leave that treatment center, eight weeks. So hold on, back up for a moment, because I'm not sure that everybody will understand that sentence. I believe what you're saying is that you learned more eating disorder tricks of the trade. You were a first timer in treatment. You're only six months really into experiencing anorexia or an eating Mm -hmm. disorder, whereas most of the the girls or women there probably or had been in treatment multiple times and had sometimes like decades of experience, if you will. So yeah, you exactly. so you leave with more more tools, if you will, to yeah. damage yourself. Yeah, exactly. And I think I learned a new way of looking at my body negatively that I had never had before because I was surrounded by constant negative self-talk by other women who had been struggling for so long with body image. Oh my gosh. And for me, you know, you know, I started my, my conversation with you recognizing that I was always in a thin body. And I think during that time period in treatment, I really identified with being thin and I identified with the term anorexia that was thrown upon me because that was who I was. Like to me, even growing up, I was the thin sister. I was always praised for my body for looking a certain way. And putting that term anorexia on me almost like gave me a fire to keep that going and to keep that praise going. So when I left treatment, yeah, I had all these like tools, as you said, I learned these new tricks of how to keep that ideal Mm -hmm. body that I had always had. And it really just over the next two years, I spiraled. And I Mm -hmm. remember stepping out of treatment and just getting sicker and sicker. So I spent the next two years really sick and I spent the next two years going in and out of treatment. So you left college and no more college. So yeah, I I had to leave that university because of everything that happened with me enrolling into residential. Um, I ended up enrolling out of college on Long Island while also continuing outpatient treatment. 
mm-hmm. at the time, but it really took me away from that university, which is my dream. It had been my dream for years. Mm-hmm. And instead I, you know, came back to a local college instead and really just focused on my eating disorder, which is so sad for me to say. So yeah, the next two years, I just continued to get sick and I was in and out of treatment centers. I went, ended up going back to that same residential treatment center about a year and a half after my original treatment. And that time I had actually volunteered myself to go in Mm -hmm. because I recognized how sick I was and I was miserable. And at that time, I felt like I was putting other people in jeopardy because of my eating disorder. And I know I share that I felt like I was putting people in jeopardy because at the time I was nannying for family and I was taking care of these three wonderful children. And I remember driving them home one day from one of their activities and I hadn't eaten in I don't know how long. And I felt like I was about to black out because I didn't have enough energy. Meanwhile, I was driving a car with three children in it and that scared the crap out of me. So that's when I decided to enroll back into treatment. Yeah. So your wake up moment kind of beautifully was a before disaster moment, which like most, you know, sometimes we don't get so lucky. Sometimes it's it's the disaster. So that brings you back to the same residential treatment. And my question really in the beginning was, I think a lot of people have not so good experiences at residential treatment and other people are saved by residential treatment. Mm -hmm. And I think it has to do with your journey and where you're at and the treatment center itself and your willingness and all of that. So now now you're back. And what was this experience different? I guess I should ask. I'm just kind of assuming that this one was different, but I don't know. (laughs) It was. It was completely different because I wanted to be there and I wanted to receive the treatment and I wanted to get better because I had recognized from that last year and a half, two years that I couldn't live this way. It wasn't healthy and I was putting other people at risk as well as myself. So I was only allowed four weeks there due to medical insurance reasons. And I remember going in and saying, I'm going to make the best of these 30 days that I have. I'm going to do everything possible for me to recover. And I took in every tool, every resource, every therapy appointment, and really tried to use it to my benefit. I was like that eager kid at the front of the class, like really wanting to write everything down, <laughs> um, like raising her hand when we had questions. Like I I was that person for the therapist. Well, you, you strike me as a perfectionist in general, because <laughs> yeah. like I said, you're the manager at, you know, Lulu. Lululemon. That's a that's a big job. We're recording this at 930 in the morning and your hair is perfectly done and, you know, everything about you. So I think that when it comes to your eating disorder, though, it could go either way. You're either going to be really, quote unquote, good at your eating disorder or you're going to be really good at beating your eating disorder, which, you know, is which way is it going to fall for you and your personality? Yeah, for sure. And I think that time in treatment, I was the perfectionist and you know, I really took in everything I could, but unfortunately when I did step down and leave treatment, I still struggled and I still relapsed and I still couldn't seem to beat it no matter how hard I tried. My identity was still so closely tied Mm -hmm. to the term anorexia or anorexic Mm -hmm. and being thin. And that was a really hard bond for me to break. So then what happened? What was the next step for you? It was 
early 2012 at this point. And what changed for me was that I I found my religion. I found my faith. Well, let's back up a minute because <laughs> you grew up with what, what was your family's religion? So I grew up pretty much agnostic or atheist. My mom raised us to uh, without any religion so that we could grow up and really choose whatever we wanted if mm-hmm. we if we felt called to it one day, um, but really le- more leaning towards atheist as I was a teenager um, and when I was 18, for sure. So when you say you found my religion, does that mean you chose one that worked that that <laughs> spoke to you or one that you're pa- like, yeah, what? Tell, tell us a little more about that. Well, honestly, it, it came out of nowhere. Like I think a lot of things do in my life. Things just kind of happen. But same I for me, was- finding you, by the way. <laughs> For me, what happened was I was relapsing and having and having a really hard time finding really strong footing to recover. And I ended up finding an eating disorder anonymous group um, and a celebrate recovery group, which is based out of a church that was literally down the block from my house. Mm-hmm. It couldn't have been a, more of a perfect situation. And I went to one of these meetings. I was invited to a worship night. And this is a Christian uh, religion. It's a non-denominational Christianity for those who might be wondering what I'm talking about. And so I go the next Next week to this worship night. If you don't know what it is, it's just a night where they sing songs to God. It's like Christian rock music, pretty much. And I was sitting in the chair and there are people with their arms raised around me worshiping God. And as an atheist at the time, I was like, where is the nearest exit? <laughs> I'm so uncomfortable right now. And I just remember a song was, I don't remember the name of it, but it was something like come as you are, like all of you who are broken, you're loved here. And I remember in that moment, just feeling and seeing, because my eyes were closed, seeing my heart in, in these shattered pieces coming back together and being fused together and this brilliant light shining out of it. And I had never felt so loved and so held and so whole in that moment. And I remember just breaking down and I left church that day as a Christian. And that meeting with God changed my whole life and changed the entire trajectory of my life from the end of January 2012 to where I am now. I have like chills and tears and all those things. And what's super interesting to you in the religion situation is we just finished the Jewish holidays and, you know, you didn't wish me a happy new year. I think you texted me Lashana Tova. And I was like, (laughs) this girl, I don't know where to put her in my brain. Like, you know, you said it. I was like, (laughs) I'm so confused how she knows like how to say it in Hebrew and and that's what kind of makes you interesting because you you also spent time in Israel after that right I did yeah so I had a weird life path after that but I ended up studying like Israeli studies and Jewish studies and living in Israel for a summer about like a year after I got saved. So, But that's what I I love. It's just like when you find religion in a way that breaks your heart open, like when you described your heart and like kind of like God holding space for you, you're just a compassionate, kind person and you're interested in different religions and that doesn't, you know, you still have your own faith. I don't know. I just find that just so interesting about you. Like sometimes you can become so fused to your identity, like that could have been your only identity. And then you kind of close off anything that's othered, but you just keep like opening your heart to more. And that's, that's cool about you. Thank you. That's so sweet. <laughs> so uh, you also did yoga at some point came into your life. So what I want to point out with my step into my faith was that it really gave me a new identity and it gave me a new identity identity to hold on to instead of holding on to my identity is only being thin. That's all that makes me important. Um, I had this new identity within 
Christ. And that was huge for me. So I was able to see my worth and my value. I knew that I was loved beyond measure and I was loved beyond measurement. And that changed so much for me. And then about a year later, I found yoga. I just started practicing it randomly at home when there was like a huge blizzard and I was bored. (laughs) And I fell in love with yoga. And yoga gave me the ability to see my body as something different than just a vessel to look at, but something that I could really learn to work with. And I was able to find that mind-body connection that I had never had before. My body was so separate to -hmm. me and I could never really quite connect my mind and my body and how I was feeling together. And yoga gave me that opportunity to really sit within my body, be uncomfortable within stretches and learn how to be uncomfortable within what I was dealing with physically. Um, And that also taught me how to be okay with being uncomfortable with being full or being uncomfortable with gaining weight. It just gave me a lot of different insights that I had never had previously. Yoga did that for me as well. Similar to like faith, I think too, is like for me, like showing up on the mat every day when I'm bloated, when I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, super full, like you said, like all those things that I used to struggle with. And like, I remember just the feeling of your feet planted on the ground and being like, you know, I got this. I'm here for me. And it just kind of that that whole thing was was huge for me. And I know it was a big part of you and your life and you taught for a while too. So you just have so many interesting parts of your healing journey that I think many people can kind of relate to. So I love traveling and coming home to my bed because it's comfy and familiar. I love crawling into it. Well, what if you could take your bed on the road with you so that way you got good night's sleep while you're on a trip? And it's not your entire bed, but at least your bedding, which is the best part. Let me introduce you to Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding. Now, Cozy Earth is travel-friendly and hassle-free, and the bedding comes in these adorable totes, which makes it really easy for you to take it on trips with you. They also have really amazing loungewear, so if you're on a long flight, you can stay cool and comfy with Cozy Earth's temperature-regulating bamboo joggers and pullover crew, and it'll add a touch of style to your travel ensemble as well. So whether you're exploring stuff near or far, take a little bit of home with you. Cozy Earth has everything you need to turn every moment into pure bliss. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Visit CozyEarth.com and use our code OUTWAY at checkout to get 35% off. And let them know that we sent you after you check out. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh, Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. 
I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Okay, so then you got married down the line to your wonderful (laughs) husband. And Charlie is how old? He's two and a half almost. Two and a half almost. And now you have another one on the way. So let's talk about the pregnancy with Charlie. So you're 29 now. So you were about 26? I was 26. Yeah, when I had him. What year did you find your faith? So I found my faith in 2012 and yoga in 2013. Mm -hmm. And then I met my husband the next year in 2014. Okay. And then what year did you have Charlie? 2018. Okay. So what was it like to have your body change in that way for the first time? Was it triggering? Yes. And in a way that I didn't think I would have, I thought because I had been in recovery for so many years and had been doing so well, and that I was so excited to become a mom that being pregnant and dealing with the physical changes wouldn't phase me. That's how I went into pregnancy, like super excited. This isn't going to bother me. I'm going to take it on, take on the weight gain with like happiness. And as my pregnancy progressed with my son the first time, I had like a stark awakening of this is harder than I thought it was going to be because your body is just changing so quickly. It, you know, mm. again, a zero to a hundred really quick with pregnancy, all of a sudden you start showing all of a sudden your weight's going up. And again, because I had lived in a thin body for so long mm. for my entire life, seeing my body change and seeing the numbers on the scale go up to a level I had never seen before was really difficult for me to wrap my head around and really difficult for me to stay positive and in a positive mindset during the pregnancy. So how did you? I think, you know, for me relying on my faith, it was a huge help, but I think I had to do a lot of restructuring in my mind Mm -hmm. all the time. And all of those coping mechanisms I had learned over the last few years of recovery, I really had to start relying on. I had to start recognizing what was triggering me, what was, you know, on those days I was having a hard time and wanting to cry about my body changing, what was that initial trigger? Was it stress at work? Was it stress with my husband? Was it something else that came up for me? And that's a helpful tool for anybody who's listening, pregnancy or not, to 
recognize that you're, I call it like activated when you're in that like anxious panic need to do something to make this feeling go away, whether that's restriction or binge or some sort of compensatory behavior. Recognizing the trigger is one because when you're in it, it kind of swallows you whole. And then taking a step back and saying, okay, what caused this? What got me here? And it might not be obvious like the minute before. It could be something building up. It could be something the day before. What is causing me to spiral? So that's just an everybody tip, I feel like. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really what I had to do in a lot of those moments. And, you know, for me, especially as a pregnancy progressed and I could feel him kicking and moving, it was being mindful in those moments to put my hands on my belly, Mm -hmm. to recognize the life that was growing within Mm -hmm. me. That was a huge grounding for me to take myself out of my head and into my physical body where there was life growing. It really allowed for me to reprioritize like what's actually important here. Is it this discomfort I'm feeling with my body or is it this life that I'm growing? And again, a tip for everybody, pregnant or not pregnant, there's always life in your body. And I think Mm -hmm. that we are really afraid to, it's going to sound weird, but to touch ourselves, like to even just put our hand on our heart or our belly, like the belly is such a triggering place for our, of course, another person to touch or, but ourselves as well. But when you feel, for me, at least yoga, like really helped me connect to a strong beating heart. And when I felt it in my body, it was like, there's life in here that's working so hard for you, you know? And so just whether it's your own life or, or a, a baby growing in, remember there's life and there's something to fight for. So I think everybody can connect to that. So That's really beautiful. your 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 unborn child was your fuel to continue to water and nourish what's within. Yeah, exactly. But those early months before the kicks, I would imagine are a little bit more challenging because I don't know, I'm not I've never been pregnant, but I, I would just imagine that when like your body's changing and it's not, you know, that belly bump that everybody kind of knows you're pregnant at that in-between stage where people are like, is she pregnant? Is she not? Or for yourself, you know, it kind of looks like bloating, you know, is that more challenging just for like what women can expect? Yeah, I think everybody's different. But for Mm -hmm. me, I think any physical change for me, especially feeling that I looked bloated all the time when normally I look not bloated all the time. Any change for me was um, hard for me to really reconcile in my mind. But you got through it without any eating disorder hiccups? Again, I had to restructure and reprioritize Mm. things in my mind, but I was able to keep my behaviors healthy and non-disordered, even though sometimes those thoughts would come back up. They would rage. And I had never experienced that in so many years since being recovered or being in recovery for so long, but I never acted on them. And that was because I I knew how important my child was and their development that I didn't want to compromise their health at all because of that. And then for the second pregnancy, has it been different? It's been the same. I I think because in your second pregnancy, typically your body changes faster. You know, you can gain weight quicker or look bigger faster, at least for me. I was showing a lot uh, sooner than I was my first pregnancy. That's been more difficult. And I think because I am dealing with looking a little bit larger than I did the first time around because Mm -hmm. I'm showing quicker, that's been harder for me. But again, I haven't 
been involved in any of the behaviors because again, I'm still restructuring and reprioritizing every moment when I have those thoughts that come in. I love that. That's really helpful to kind of know that they're kind of might still be coming in, but it comes in, I restructure, I reprioritize, and what I do is different. So let's talk a little bit about, you just did an Instagram post that I shared about how women speak about your pregnant body. So not how you speak about your body, but how others comment on a pregnant woman's body. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired that post and the takeaways that we can learn about what we should say to a pregnant woman, if anything? Yeah. So what inspired that, I think, is just the amount (laughs) of comments that I receive on my body all the time when I'm pregnant. It seems for some reason that when you become pregnant, everybody thinks that commenting on your body is fair game. And a lot of these comments come from really like well-intentioned places from loved ones and family members who are just trying to make conversation with you about being pregnant. And the first thing that they say is based upon how you look, because it's the first thing they're seeing. So it's kind of like an easy introduction into having a conversation with you while you're pregnant is commenting on your body. And I was just getting so bogged down. I would be at work and I would hear it from strangers who I had never met before. You're so cute. Or how far along are you? Oh, you're so tiny. Or, oh, you look bigger today from coworkers (laughs) or from family members. Like your belly looks so big. Look how big you've gotten. And it just, it was eating away at me. And I just knew I had to talk about it because I know that I'm not the only one who deals with that when they're pregnant. And every woman feels very, from what I've realized with friends and family, like has a different internal feeling, uh, whether it's insecure or secure about the pregnancy. Many women that I know will say this thing that literally makes me shiver and they'll call themselves FAT. I don't even want to say it because there's nothing wrong with the word fat, but in the context of the pregnancy, it's just like, what? Like, no, you're you're not no you're not fat you're there's literally a baby in you you know like some women will say that and someone will just be like I feel my best I feel my prettiest my skin is more like you know whatever so you don't know what the woman or what the individual is feeling that day but regardless of what she's feeling you're making her think about it again when you're yeah. commenting on it yet I think that a lot of it is done with not the intent to harm, but normalization of the conversation. I mean, I know I'm guilty of this 120 million percent and also just not knowing how how it's going to be received. What does it feel like to have like, I don't I have this weird thing where I love pregnant bellies, where I just like always want to touch them, even if they're a stranger. (laughs) And I feel like looking back, I've probably touched too many women's bellies that like were like, okay, like they felt like they had to say yes, but like it's so weird. (laughs) How does it feel for you for someone to touch your belly like a coworker? Obviously, I'm not Um, touching strangers' bellies, by the way, but like... (laughs) I just feel like I might have crossed the line in sometimes because I'm so excited. <laughs> Personally, for me, I don't mind it when it's people that I know okay. really well, or even if it's someone who, like a coworker who I might not be super close to, if they ask, I'm I'm all for it because it is such a strange thing for people who have never been pregnant or right. anything like that. But I definitely don't want a strange touching my belly or asking like without consent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be more conscious of that now for sure. So what are some things that we can say to a pregnant woman that makes her feel good? 
Yeah, I think it's okay to comment on the woman's appearance in a positive way that has nothing to do with their weight or their body. So so like big or small, stay away from big and small. Yes, let's keep away from that. I think what is always a nice thing to say is like, you look beautiful or pregnancy looks gorgeous on you um, or you carry so well. Those are all things that are great that are still acknowledging my belly without it being big or small or too much or too little. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's also being aware of why am I going to make this comment? Do I actually just want to say they're beautiful or am I just trying to look for an entryway into asking them how their pregnancy is going? Because right. then you can just say, how have you been feeling? Like you're seven right. months along now. How are you feeling with the approach of your second child or, or anything like that? <laughs> it's probably safe. No, yeah, 100%. I think that a lot of the comments that we throw around are seemingly benign, but loaded and send the message of validation or invalidation in the wrong way. Oftentimes when people lose weight and they're getting, you know, the applaud for the for the weight loss, you know, you're sending that person further into, okay, I'm only loved and noticed because I lost the weight. Where in the pregnancy as well, like, oh, you're so small for that month that you're in, whatever. And that is also just like a mind twist, if you will. And yeah, you don't know exactly how it's being internalized for the person. But anyway, my point here was that it's oftentimes with good intent and a want to speak to the person and know how they're doing. But instead of saying, how are you? How are you feeling? How are you really? We throw in something that is more surface and obvious. But if we tap in with ourselves and we want to know, like, how is this person feeling? Just say it because you're creating deeper connections with people, too. And that's what this is about, not being afraid to connect with other people because better to connect than to offend, right? (laughs) Yeah, and I always say, like, my weight and my pregnancy are the least interesting things about me. There are so many things that you can speak to a pregnant woman about that have nothing to do with their weight, their body, or anything like that. We are so much more interesting than all of those things. So ask us about those things. Yeah. Check in with us. We're still human beings. Um, and just like you hopefully wouldn't comment on somebody's weight gain or weight loss, whether they're pregnant or not. Hopefully you wouldn't do that while they're pregnant as well. Okay. Is there anything that you want to leave us with? Did we miss any critical parts of your story or words of wisdom? I mean, I think the words of wisdom I have for anyone who might still be in the throes of their eating disorder is that recovery is fully possible. And it can feel so isolating and so lonely when you're in the middle of it. But there is so much life waiting for you outside of your eating Mm. disorder. You know, when I was 18 to 20 to 21, when I was really in the midst of it and struggling with my depression and my eating disorder, I didn't think I would live past the age of 21. And I'm 29 today. Mm. And I have a husband who loves me. I have a child who I adore and another one on the way. And most importantly, though, you love you. And I love me. Yeah. And that's so important. And it's something I never really thought possible back then. So it is possible. If you can get professional help, get it, seek it out because you deserve to live your life. And I believe you said that your residential treatment was covered by insurance. Is that correct? It was. Yes, correct. So, I mean, I think just to know kind of the options when it comes to insurance covering this and recognizing how real eating disorders are. So I just want to read one quote that you had in your Instagram that I really loved. And I texted you yesterday just asking if it was your words. And you said that they were. (laughs) So I think maybe you should be a poet or something because I just love this. You say, when tragedies occur, we have two choices. We can 
curl up in a shell, lose our faith and say, F it, what's the point anyway, and hide our hearts to protect ourselves. Or we can say, F it, I'm going to give this life everything I've got. I choose the latter. I choose to use every last breath I have on earth to love those around me and say it until I'm blue in the face, to live with passion in everything I do and do it all with gratitude and joy. I'm not waiting for the rest of my life. The time to show up is now. Life is too short. I'm choosing to live it. That is just, I mean, Pulitzer Prize winning stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I, I just, that quote really speaks to me and puts some fire under the butt to live and go slow with an open heart and recognize that the time is now. So thank you, Alexa, for coming on and being such an awesome guest. I'm sure we'll have you on again because I have so many questions that we haven't even gotten to, but you so bravely showed up and told your story and we're all so grateful. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on and asking really great questions. Thanks. I appreciate you. appreciate you. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.